Let's face it, the last thing you want in retirement is to be forced to go back to work, right? Learn how to manage the risks that can derail your retirement on the latest episode of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Watch it online at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and check out our blogs and videos on risk management while you're there. Be sure to subscribe because new episodes of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show post every Sunday. Now, today on the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast, Qbert from AbandonedCubicle.com shares his plans for using real estate, including Airbnb and VRBO vacation rentals on his path to financial independence at the age of 46. Is it worth the risk? We'll find out. Plus, the fellas answer your questions about real estate investing. How can you avoid capital gains when selling rental property? And will investing in real estate help minimize taxes in a high-tax state? Here are Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA to answer that one right now. Uh, This is from James. My wife and I make $900,000 combined. Uh, We live in San Diego and pay a lot of taxes. Most of our income comes from our salaries and bonuses. We'd like to minimize the impact of taxes. What might be some good choices for us to consider? Tax-exempt bonds won't work and tax-loss harvesting has a marginal impact on our net income. Is real estate investing a good idea? What ideas should we consider? Well, James, first of all, congrats. 900000 a year is a fantastic. I'm assuming, he says they make, I'm assuming that's salary. Yeah, that's what he said, salaries and bonuses. Yeah, salaries and bonuses. Okay, good. So right off the bat, you just go down some categories really quickly. So when it comes to salaries, you want to look at your 401ks. If you have them, that's if you're under 50, it's 18,500. If you're over 50, it's 24,500. I'm assuming maybe you're already doing that if you can, but that's dollar for dollar tax savings. When you uh, look at other uh, potential tax deductions, there's a few quick categories I want to review with you. Uh, And one, you brought up real estate. Real estate can be a great investment and it can be a great write-off but only if one of the two of you is able to spend at least 750 hours a year and become what's called a real estate professional to where you can actually write off your losses. A lot of times people will come to us and say, hey, I heard real estate's a really good tax haven. And 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 it's not for most. For most is right. And so probably in your case, the way you've you've said this, it probably doesn't work either because if you're both working and making this kind of income, you're probably both working full time, which means one of you... you They could both be making 400 some odd thousand bucks. Yeah, so real estate professional means you have to work at least 750 hours a year doing your real estate investments, management, buying properties, whatever, and it has to be more than half of your professional time. So if you're working 2,000 hours a year, you got to work 2,001 hours in real estate. That's a lot of time. Not too many people can pull that off. But if you can, or you're in a situation where maybe one spouse isn't working and can do the 750 hours, now all of a sudden you can write off your depreciation losses. Uh, and in, in what I would say, it like this for probably about a million dollars of property you could probably generate about a $25,000 deduction maybe a little bit more only if there's a real estate professional in the household correct and and based upon the actual cash flow i'm making just a very broad assumption so so if you want if you want a $250,000 write off against income one of the two of you would have to be a real estate professional you'd probably have to own about 
eight or ten million dollars of property. <laughs> so that may not work for you, but that is one I wanted to bring up. Probably the probably one of the. Or you could give like a million dollars to charity. <laughs> yeah, that that well, that will save you a little bit. That, of, that is the other thing because like like maybe. Well, I mean, let's look uh, on the schedule A because that's where you have to figure this out, right? Right. Well, now state taxes. Property tax, you got ten grand. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, maybe if you get really sick, that's some got, ways to got, save some money in taxes. You got medical expenses, right? If you want to get a hip replacement, yeah. you could yeah. do it. Do it in a year where you have high income. Right. Charity, yeah. And I want to talk about charity because I think that's probably the only th- thing besides your real estate. It, um, in, unless you've got a business, right? And right. I'm assuming this is salary. If it's a if it's a salaries bit, and bonuses, yeah, but if it's his yeah. own business, then maybe you can there's you set you, up different types of retirement accounts, right? Exactly. But with regards to uh, charity, and, and think about this. So nine hundred thousand is a great salary, and it doesn't say how old you are. But let's just say you're making the salary towards the end of your career, salary and bonuses. Maybe you're going to retire next year, year after. And if your plan is to give to charities throughout your retirement, why not give today? Get the deduction today for future year contributions while you're in the highest tax bracket. Yep. You set up a, a vehicle called a donor advised fund, and you can set it up at, at usually pretty much any brokerage uh, firm like uh, TD Ameritrade or Fidelity. There's a couple there. Schwab would be another one. You set up this account. You put the money in the account. The year that you put the money in the account, it becomes a tax deduction. And now you've got this account that you can invest and manage as you see fit. And then you give to charities of your choice over time. And this can be over the rest of your lifetime or whatever you want to do. And better than giving cash is maybe you take some of your stock that's gone up in value and you donate your stock to the fund. And now whatever the stock is worth on the date of the do- donation becomes a charitable deduction, and you don't have to pay the capital gains tax. So that's the best way to do this. Apart from having real estate and owning your own business and taking advantage of your employer's 401k, that's charity is kind of the, about the only thing that's available. Not necessarily. What about um, oil and gas? Well, the, the only thing I'd recommend. <laughs> and I actually just had a chat with a client about that uh, on Tuesday. We, with some wildcatting. Yeah, you know, so, some, so, dig some, you know, oil wells. Yeah, and, and, and give you some tax credits. And the reason I brought it up was because How about low income housing. Yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> There's no investment value there, but so oil and gas. So you invest a hundred thousand dollars in a in an entity, usually an LLC that that tries to find drill for oil, intangible drilling, and uh, so you generally can write off the majority of your investment in year one, and then after that, hopefully, it starts paying off. The problem is they generally don't pay off very well. So usually, it's like throwing money away for a tax deduction. Well, it's like striking oil. That means it doesn't happen every day. Yeah, and and in the past decade, when it has happened, the payouts have not been that great. Fracking. Yeah, you get a tax. Do I get tax credits for fracking? Well, (laughs) I don't. I don't know how those work. I don't think so. Uh, These are intangible oil drilling wells, and actually, it's fracking is the reason why these have not been very good over the last decade because because the price of oil has gone way down because the supply is up, and so people that have done this have been pretty sorry. They got a tax write off. And that was about it. Yeah. Remember the tax credits? I don't remember, but you do. But like in the 80s and everything else, it's like, well, here, I got this great tax deduction or tax benefit, but yeah. the, the, the investment is absolutely worth nothing. Yeah. that was. Remember the windmill farms? You, you, were, you were just in elementary awesome. school. But. <laughs> I don't even, I have no idea what you're talking about. If you own real estate, have a high salary, own a business, have capital gains, or you generate a lot of income from inherited assets, 
there are ways for you to pay less income tax. To learn more, find links to our free resources in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan Clopine, it's that time of the show. That it is, Joe. We've got another great guest. Cupert. Cupert. Just the yeah, one Yeah, just like, you know, yeah. one name. Like Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> of course or it was. Prince. Right? Or Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, yeah. So for anyone who grew up in late 70s, early 80s and loved the coin-out video games, you might remember Cubert. So I figured let's just combine the cubicle life with a video game from my childhood. And that's Perfect. that's how we landed on Cubert, yeah. Cubert writes a blog. It's called AbandonCubicle.com. Tell us a little bit about your story. He's part of the FIRE movement. Financial, Financial independence. independence. Retire early. Look at you, big Al. Yeah. So you put 20 years into the corporate scene, and you look out in front of you, and you say to yourself, holy smokes, I've got another 20 years of this. And three or four years ago, had a project from Hades. It was rough. It was a year and a half of doing the weekend thing, doing the evenings, and the worst part was that was right around the time that our kids were born. We have uh, boy-girl twins. And and I'll I'll never forget, instead of being able to celebrate the first Mother's Day, my lovely wife and kids, they kind of hung out while I was on work calls. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not what I had envisioned for us. So that prompted me to go out onto Google and look up Mr. Money Mustache. I sort of stumbled upon his blog. And I'll tell you, after you've gone through those posts... I'm like, man, this is going to be a life changer. And that's really what sort of set me on my journey. And I know you started buying some rental properties. And and I think your most recent one you bought, uh, it's a vacation rental. I think you're using Airbnb and VRBO. And and I think our listeners would kind of like to know some of the ins and outs there. So this is probably a good time to say, you know, careful what you walk into. Yes, they can be rewarding. They can be profitable. But it takes work. And there will be surprises. So just today, I got a call from my property manager. And he's like, I need you to turn on the fan because your condensate line and the air conditioning was plugged. And you had about six inches of standing water in your furnace that I had to drain out. And now that's in your return air duct. And here I am, 600 miles away. And about the only thing I could do was go to my Nest app on the phone, and I can control my thermostat remotely and at least turn the fan on to get the air moving in the place. So you just never know when things are going to come up. And of course, I've got a guest checking in later this afternoon. So 600 miles away. So how do you manage that with property managers, repair people, things that need to be done to the unit? If you are going to get into this, I would just make sure that you've got a friend nearby. We had it quite easy. We were hanging with my folks, and there happened to be a unit available for sale where they live. So my folks, when they're there in the summer, can keep an eye on things. They have made good friends with the property manager. So he's a friend of mine, and he also looks after the place. So having those contacts is key. If you're hundreds or thousands of miles away, and you haven't established those relationships, I would have a lot more sleepless nights. You're looking to get financially independent at age 46, uh, which is a pretty aggressive goal. So it sounds to me is that you're building up a portfolio to get passive income to provide yourself with a lifestyle from now until the rest of your life. And the strategy that you're using is real estate. And then now you're trying to expand that portfolio a little bit by doing a little bit more of Airbnb, VBRO versus just having standard rentals. 
That's right. And this is intended to sort of boost that passive income. But what would you say he, was more risky? Well, I could buy single family residence. I could have two or three units and things like that, depending on my cash flow. Should I look and say, you know what, I'm going to turn all my rentals into VBRO or Airbnb? Or, or, or you want a little bit of mix to be diversified? <laughs> You know, mix is good, and I'll tell you why. I think there's some risk-reward. I think that the reward is greater with vacation rentals. We expect to yield a little bit more income off of this one unit as opposed to our single families. But the trade-off is you've got to put work into it. I'm constantly on my phone managing guests. You're constantly on. It's not passive. The other thing is this. It seems like you turn the page in any local rag where tourism is part of the base there's new regulations. And in fact, one of the gotchas that has emerged this year for us, as I've heard from the board of our homeowners association, that they're not too thrilled with all the coming and going with the vacation rentals at our condo complex. So I might be on borrowed time with my ability to rent out for one, two, three nights stays, I might be penned into week-long stays and that could really cut into things. Looking at VBRO or Airbnb, uh-huh. are you looking in areas specifically, it would have to be a desirable place to go. I mean, if I live in Cincinnati, <laughs> no, nothing against hey, Cincinnati. Never, I love Cincinnati. <laughs> I, yeah, oh, me too. <laughs> right? right? We live in San Diego. I think maybe I could get away with that if I had a nice place close to the beach. Sure. But if I'm living in suburbia, I don't know, does VRBO, whatever, what we're talking about, or Airbnb, does that even make sense? I think you do need to understand the market. I experimented with this earlier this summer by putting our own house up on Airbnb. Didn't get a single bite. And this is Minneapolis. We're in a pretty nice part of the city with accessibility to the airport, quick drive to the Mall of America, parks, you name it but not a bite. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but compare that to our rental in Northwest Michigan outside of Traverse City and Charlevoix. We had no problem at all drumming up bookings. Yeah, I think the market certainly is a big factor. in So with your journey to financial freedom, tell me a little bit about the planning that you did. I mean, did you just kind of work back your living expenses or are you one of the types that can live off of $1,500 a month? Well, it doesn't hurt to be cheap. For most of my adult life, I've played it pretty tight in terms of where I put my money. I had a roommate for a number of years. We've kept a small house all these years. The kids share a bedroom. We've got two cars that are paid off, nothing fancy. They get good mileage. And our kids are are going to the public schools right here. A few things have, have helped along the way. The real estate venture that we started up in 2013 with the single family houses couldn't have picked a better time. We got in when the rates were just so low, and I think our average interest rate on our rentals is like 4.5%. And the value of those houses were still pretty depressed since the housing bubble burst. So we got in at the right time, and I think timing is a lot of it as well. So let's talk about that just briefly. So you bought the first rental, and then did you have extra money for the down payment for the next rental, or did you refinance the first one to buy the second one? Or how did you do this mechanically? So probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but for the first one, it was using our own HELOC. We had a home equity line of credit on our primary residence, and we dipped into that. The next one, not more than six months later, said, you know, we should really go for number two because, you know, this market, it could heat up in, in a heartbeat. In that case, I used a 401k loan, and we paid it off like straight away. But it didn't sit well with me that we had to do it that way. 
But back then, I think it was worth it to use the HELOC and then 401k loan to make those first two rentals happen. So if I were to look at your portfolio, is it mostly real estate? How are you putting all this assets together to get you to financial independence at such a young age? Well, this is what makes it less scary for us, I think, is that it's about 50-50. Half of our net worth is sitting in index funds in a 401k, and then the other half is comprised of our real estate. And that's where the passive income comes into play. We won't tap into the 401k dollars until right around age 60. Well, how much leverage do you have on your properties? It's quite a bit. Uh, You know, on the rentals, we're big believers in other people's money. So the bank is holding the houses while we take advantage of the income. But we are working to aggressively pay off the mortgage on our primary house. One less expense to cover in early retirement. So we expect to have that paid off right around this time next year as well. I do think you're right. Other people's money makes a lot of sense when you're building, growing, if you hit the market right. If you hit the market wrong, it actually can work very much against you because now all of a sudden your mortgages are greater than your valuation. And usually when that happens, people can't pay the same kind of rent. And so now you're not covering your cash flow as well. And so for our listeners, it's a caution. Leverage is definitely a way to build wealth, but you have to be a bit careful with it. Yeah, you need time and you need cash flow. Yes, you do. And that cash flow can change when market conditions change. Right. As I experienced in uh, 2006, (laughs) 7, 8, 9. (laughs) We we all have some horror stories, don't we? Uh, Of course. Well, you got to check Cooper down. He he writes out a blog. It's called AbandonCubicle.com, AbandonCubicle.com. Cubert, we really appreciate you hanging out with us today. It was my pleasure, guys. Thanks very much for having me. For more on using Airbnb and VRBO to generate income, find a link to Qbert's comprehensive guide to profitable vacation rentals in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Next week on the podcast, Joe and Big Al will get into the basics of individual retirement accounts, also known as IRAs. Learn everything you need to know about contributing to an IRA, IRAs for small business owners, self-directed IRAs, IRA mistakes to avoid, and they'll answer your questions, like what's the return on an IRA? Subscribe to the podcast for free at yourmoneyyourwealth.com so you can listen on demand. And if you've got IRA questions, or for that matter, any other money questions, comments, or suggestions, or guests that you'd like to hear Joe and Big Al interview, just email info at purefinancial.com. We just got off the phone um, with Cupert. Cubert. Cubert. I yeah. think you're calling him Cupert. Yeah. It's Cubert. Well, it, <laughs> I think it's a Bert. <laughs> Q and Bert, I think. So, abandonedcubicle.com. So, we, we get a lot of these fire people on. Yeah, Financial we, independence, retire early. And some of them have interesting strategies. Sure, they do. And and so, I guess in this particular case, so the thing I like about Cubert is he, he's got a lot of passion about getting into real estate. He's relatively new to it. He's got five properties. As we just heard, they're, they're pretty well levered up. And, and he got in, in 2012. Yeah, right. At, at, at a good time, right? How long have you been a real estate investor? 30 years? Since, yeah, since 1985. Okay. 30 plus years. So you got a little bit of gray hair so, on your uh, yeah. head from real estate, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, and, and it's funny. So And, and so <clears throat> one of the suggestions by Qbert w- was use other people's money, which does, it does make sense. In other words, if you use all cash, right, then if the property goes up 5% or 4% in value, then you made 4 or 5%. 
But if you put 10% down and it goes up 4%, now you, now it's like you made 40% because you got less invested, right? right? That, because you're the equity owner. The problem is if it goes down 10%, now you've, you've lost 100% of your investment. So that's where you have to be a little careful on leverage. And when I first got interested in real estate investing, and this was in the mid-80s, I started uh, reading books about it. I went to a couple uh, seminars, and I was a little bit surprised to find out that almost every speaker had basically lost everything at least once in their career from real estate and gone bankrupt. And I thought, well, if this is so easy, how, how does this work? <laughs> and then, um, I mean, uh, one, uh, actually, uh, someone that lives here locally, Robert Allen, he's, uh, he's, he wrote the book called Nothing Down in, uh, I think, 1990 or the late 80s. And, and it was a really, I thought, a really good book on how to buy property using other people's money. But he had gone through an experience where he had a bunch of properties and he basically lost virtually all of them. And I was trying to figure out why he and others had lost so much money. And then over time, I did figure it out. Uh, and I experienced some of that myself. Yeah, sure. Because... What happens is when you buy properties with high leverage, it means a high loan. So it's a simple example, $100,000 property, you put 10% down, $10,000, you borrow $90,000. Uh, in the Great Recession, that $100,000 property, uh, which, I had 60. In, which I had in Las Vegas, right. uh, was a condo. I mean, it was a little more than that, but th easy math, right? So the $100,000 property uh, that I had a $85,000 loan on, all of a sudden is now worth 50000 Right. Is, is what it was. It went down 50%. And you have an $85,000 loan on and a I property got, that's fifty. dollars I got an $85,000 loan on that property, and then the rents that I was receiving to cover the mortgage, I couldn't charge the same rents anymore because it was the Great Recession. No one could afford it. Right. So now i got to lower the rents. I can't sell the property because I'm 35000 <laughs> negative. Yeah, right. And I can't hold the property because I can't afford <laughs> the payments. And it, and it's like if, if, if my business was going really well, but it was the Great Recession. <laughs> Right. My business was not going well right. at that point, and it's like, oh man, now I get how all this works, and and so leverage can can definitely work for you, but it can work against you in poor markets. You know, it's it, the the financial industry. You know, I was listening to some podcast, and it's like, well, with everything, you know, it's the seven sins, and I'm like, man, our industry is full of them. Right. You, know, you got that, that greed factor when things are good. Right. And it's like, well, this is pretty easy. Look at the cash flow that I'm making. You know what? Why don't we do another one? Sure. A couple months later, let's, oh, let's well, do another well, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, I pull a 401k loan. I got a bunch of money in the 401k. Let's do that. Boom. And then, hey, you know what? Maybe we just take a distribution from the overall plan because, right. you know what? Look at how much more money we're making on the other side. Right. Until it doesn't happen Until anymore. Until it doesn't work. Until it doesn't work. <laughs> and Alan, you've always said, is like, the, <clears throat> if you want to get into the real estate game, you need to have time. You need to have time to weather through bad markets. Right. And you need to have cash flow. You need to have resources. Yes, you need to have cash flow or resources to make sure that you can weather through those bad times. Because here's the tendency, Joe, is, is, is you buy a, a rental property and it works well. And so you refinance it and you buy another one. And sure. you refinance it and buy another one. And it's like all the while, it's like, well, why do I need cash? If I have cash, I'm going to invest it. Because cash... I make nothing, and the real estate I'm making 20% per year. Sure. And you can with leverage. And the way that that works is because you have a down payment and your appreciation, you get all the appreciation on your smaller down payment. That's how you can make 
good big money in real estate. Yeah, because it, like, going back to your uh, example, if I have a $100,000 property and the property value goes up 5%, that property is now worth 105000 for simple math. Right. But it, let's say if I have only 10% down. So I invested $10,000 and I got a $5,000 return. So I made a 50%, 50% return. Rate of return. Now, it's not that simple because there's cash flows and maybe I'm losing money because I have such a low uh, down payment. But that's the idea. You use other people's money to, to make money. And if you hit the market right, it definitely works. And there's been, at least in my real estate investing career, <laughs> there's been two really tough markets. One was in the early 90s. That was the savings and loan crisis, where properties in, in San Diego went down roughly 15 to, to 20 percent. And then we had the Great Recession where properties in San Diego, depends upon where you're located. Some, some areas only went down 15%, others went down a lot more. I happen to have property in Arizona and Las Vegas at the same, at that time. Not Florida? Not Florida. <laughs> that would have been even worse. Yeah, the trifecta. Well, yeah, we had all three, right? My brother had Florida. <laughs> so between our family, we made great decisions. Uh, Phoenix uh, went down, I'm going to say, about 50 to 60% in the Great Recession. The two homes that I bought for 150000 which went up to about 225000 in, in about three years, were down to about 70000 80000 each. I mean, right. that, that was what they were worth. Now, at this point, <laughs> years later, now they're back up to the 230, 240 range. But that's that's the thing, is, is leverage can really <laughs> work against you. And you need to have resources to be able to cover those lean times. You know, and I think the mind plays tricks on you, too, a little bit. And so going back to the example is, all right, well, here, I have a property I spent $100,000 for, and then all of a sudden I see the thing go up to about $175,000. I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling confident. Right. right? So then I'm going to buy another one, lever right. up, lever up. That's right. And then the, the market tanks, and then now that 175 goes back to 100 but oh, well, now wait a minute, maybe it goes down to 85000 So it's the, the, the property value is less than my the, the loan. The loan. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm out of this thing. Right. Because I, I can't afford it. I, I can't. And, and even though the cash flow worked out on paper, it, when even you if I it, had the cash flow, people walked away from that crap. Yeah, they did. And that was the short sales and right. the, the real estate class. It's like, well, uh, you know what? I'll just walk away. My neighbor's walking away. They're not paying the rent and this and that. And it's less worth it. You know, that's what really kind of bugged me. Right. And we would, li- we, people would be on or we would talk to like clients. I'm just walking away. I, you got millions of dollars. You're walking away. What the hell are you doing? Right. Is oh. it? <laughs> so I digress. Never mind. <laughs> I don't want to get... Anyway, so, so for so I'll, I'll do a little quick summary. Uh, by borrowing money, by getting a loan on your rental properties, it, it increases your potential for, for growth. And for if you know anyone that's made money in real estate, that's how they've done it. They bought real estate. What tends to happen is is you tend to do this when you're younger, when, you, when you're able to handle the risk. And then as you get older, assuming you hit the right market timing, what you tend to do is you kind of pay down your debt, and then, then now you got this really good cash flow right. that, that lasts for a long time. Now, on the other hand, if you've levered up too much, you bought too many properties too quickly, and you get a market hiccup, that's when there's big problems. And that's exactly what happened 2007 through about 2010. So I'm going to have a little close watch here on Cupert. Yeah, see, see how he does. Hopefully he continues to blog. Now, he's, he's in a little different area. He's in Minnesota where you can buy a property for 150000 or 200000 In California, no way. It's, you forget about it. it. If you if you could find a property for five or six hundred thousand dollars, you probably don't want it 
Right, right. right. So <laughs> then you're looking at <laughs> seven, eight hundred thousand. I mean, th- that's why it makes no sense that it had trying to have and, a rental property. And the old, the old, the old rule: you read all the re- the real estate books. They tell you, okay, whatever you pay for it, your rent should be one percent of that. So I'm, I'm going to buy a seven thousand. $700,000 kind of basic home in San Diego. Can I rent it for seven grand a month? No, not even close. <laughs> maybe 2200 Maybe 2500 right. maybe. Right, right, right. So the math just in some areas doesn't work very well. So, so it, it gets even trickier when you're in a high-cost area like California because now there's little margin for error. So you better have a lot of resources. All right. Uh, we're talking real estate. We're talking debt. We're talking retiring early. I think I'm gonna change my name, and I'm—I don't know what it's Gilbert? gonna be yet. <laughs> well, he did—he—he he did Q Bert. Why don't you be Q Pert? Well, that's what his whole stick was—the <laughs> little orange thing with the giant whatever that thing was. I think you should be Joe Bert. J- no, let's change the subject and get out of here. Well, so much for a clever nickname for Joe. Learn more about real estate investing, including seven mistakes that new real estate investors make and how to avoid them, and three tips on how to start investing in real estate from the experience of the one and only Big Al Clopine. You'll find links to these free resources in the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, let's get back to answering your emails about rental real estate. If you've got a money question of any kind, call 888-994-6257 or email info at purefinancial.com. This is my favorite part of the show. Answering I questions. I, yeah. I really enjoy this. Yeah. Helping, and, helping the people. And you especially like it when I not only have not seen the questions, I can't even read them. So, yes. so this, this is definitely off the cuff. Okay, here's one. This is right up your alley uh, for Big Al. Okay. Um, if my wife and I sold a rental property for $150,000 and purchased a new property for $300,000, okay. how would we avoid capital gains tax? Okay. He's aware of the 1031 exchange option, but we want the new property to be our primary residence. Okay. Could we rent it out for a period of time before living in it? Any help would be appreciated. Okay. That is a great question, and, and I'm going to walk through it with you. So first of all, a 1031 exchange is when you sell a, an investment property, a rental property, and buy another rental property. And there's certain time frames. So when you sell the property, first of all, your money has to go to a, a qualified intermediary or exchange accommodator. Those are a couple words. So you cannot actually get your hands on the money. It's a third party. Uh, and then after the escrow closes, you have 45 days to identify up to three properties that you might want to buy. And then you have six months from the close of escrow to actually buy one of those three properties. So as long as you do all of those things and the rental property that you purchase is more expensive than the property that you sell, then you defer the gain. So you don't eliminate the gain, you just defer it. So it has to be more expensive or the same price. Same price it or more. It cannot be lower or else there's boot. Correct. That, that's right. And, and boot just means... There's a tax event on the yeah, difference. Yeah. And so if you walk away from a transaction with cash in your pocket or less debt, either of those things are considered boot and it's taxable. Okay? So not the whole... Not, not, not the not, whole enchilada, just no. whatever that differential is, correct? Yeah, but, but it's not pro rata, and I know you'll know what that means. But basically, it means that if you have gain of $100,000 and you get boot, in other words, cash of 80000 the entire 80000 is gain. Got it. Right? And you still have another deferred gain of 20000 that goes into that property. And then when you sell that property, you'll pay the tax on that $20,000 gain in, in the future. 
right? So in this case, uh, so what I said is you have to you have to buy you have to sell a rental property and buy a rental property. So this wouldn't necessarily work, but but here's how you do it. Okay, and so your thinking is right. You do want to um, buy uh, the property that you buy for $300,000. That does need to be a rental property. And most accountants would say you probably should rent it for a year, maybe two. Two tax returns at, at least? At least two tax returns. Uh, there's really no hard and fast rule on how long to do it. The longer, the better. The, ru- the, really, the rule is this, that if your intent is it's rental for rental, there's no problem. Then you can turn around later kick the tenant out and move into it as your primary residence because your intent at the point of purchase uh, was that it was rental for rental. Now, if your intent really was you want to live in this property and you, and you have a rental for like a, a day or a week or even a you few put it months. On a, right. You put yeah. it on Craigslist and no and one no, bites. No one, no one ever rents it and, and it's suspicious, right? And so that's why accountants will say maybe you ought to rent it for a couple of years just to show you know that this was really your intent to have it be a rental. But uh, that people do this all the time. And, and so it's not necessarily a bad strategy, but just remember, it has to be a rental for a, a, a period of time. And then later on, when you decide, you know what, I don't want a rental anymore. Circumstances change. I'd actually like to live in this property. Then you can kick the tenant out, move into it. And you don't have to pay the tax at that point. You pay the tax when you sell the property down the road. So let's get into that. So now um, I 1031 exchanged a property that has low basis, I avoided the gain. And that's why you do a 1031 exchange. You don't want to pay the capital gains tax. Right. So, And, and if there's no gain when you sell a property, don't do a 1031. Yes. Just, just and, sell And the it. gain has to be probably, I don't know, maybe more than a, a taxable gain of probably more than $100,000 for this yeah. to be worthwhile? Well, it depends on the person, right? So, so if it, Well, I don't know. What, what is the intermediary cost to, you know, to do all of this stuff? Well, it's, it probably costs $500 to $1,000. It's not the end of the world, but a lot of people don't necessarily want to buy real estate. Some people do 1031 exchanges to avoid paying taxes of five grand, and it's like, well, did you want another rental? No, I hate rentals. It's like, well, well just, just pay the pay tax, the tax pay, and, and move, move on, on right? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so, okay, so I, I avoided the capital gains tax. I'm um, flipping homes. I'm doing well. I'm just trading up. Yeah, right. right. That's what a lot of people do. They start sure. with one, and then all right, that one was good. Let's trade up. Let's buy a little bit bigger house. Oh, I got some money there. Let's trade up. And so you're continuing to trade up on this real estate yes, cycle. That's right. And then, but your basis now is really low. It's low because you've never paid gains. You, you never pay tax, right? Yeah. So you, you that 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 basis just carries through from each exchange that you do. Yeah, and the way this works, Joe, is let's say he buys this property for $300,000 and he avoided a $50,000 gain, mm-hmm. for example. So then it, it's as if he bought this new property for 250000 not three hundred. So that's how this works. So if he sold it, he would have paid the $50,000 tax. Yeah. However, now he lives in the home. Right. And let's say he lives in that home for two out of the last five years. Right. So it was a rental, and... Does he get the full two fifty five hundred? So I can exclude that gain up to let's say if he's married, yes. up to five hundred thousand dollars of gain. Yes, but he would have to pay tax on whatever depreciation. 
Yeah, so it's it's you're you're on the right path. It's a little more complicated than that. Figured. So so because because it was a rental originally, so so first of all, you're right. So there's a 121 exclusion if you live in the home two out of the last five years. You're married. You get a five hundred thousand dollar gain exclusion. Single two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So that's true. But if it was a rental property first, what happens is you have to go back to 2009 and look at the number of years that it was a rental versus today. And so maybe right now it's 2018, and let's say he, he rents it for another couple years, and then he moves into it, lives there a couple years. So now you got to look at you got to look at roughly 12 years. You lived in it two out of 12 years, so two twelfths of the of the exclusion is available. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that but, be, because before 2009 counts as residence, even though it was rental. So if this is your situation, get some help. But the point is, if you bought a rental property and and then turn it into a residence, you're not going to necessarily get the full exclusion. Because that was what... And this law just changed. Yeah, well, it was just 2009, but that's... It feels like yesterday. Well, see, that's what happens when you get older. <laughs> Sometimes I say 85, and I met 2015. I, I, it just it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, right? For you, I mean, that's forever. But. 2009. What, what year is it? <laughs> <laughs> We're nine years later. But the reason why they it did... It was so nine years. I mean, when did we start this firm? 2007? Uh, 2007. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the reason they did this, Joe, is because investors... They were just simply moving, moving into rental yeah. after rental. Live there two years, sell it. Sell exclusion. Live there two years, exclusion. Yep. So, but e- even if you get the exclusion, you have to pay tax on depreciation recapture. And that's 25%. Correct. All right. So uh, that's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. I want to thank Andy Lass for producing such a wonderful show. All right. We'll see you next week. Show's called Your Money Your Wealth. Special thanks to today's guest, Kubert from AbandonedCubicle.com. Find a link to his comprehensive guide to profitable vacation rentals in the show notes at YourMoneyYourWealth.com or visit AbandonedCubicle.com to read more about Kubert's plans for fire. Clearly, this real estate investing stuff is complicated. And like Big Al said, it's a good idea to get some help. You can email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257 to get some insight on your specific situation. And you can sign up for a free financial assessment at purefinancial.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to listen to your favorite podcasts. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 